On this episode of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about Hamilton's potential bid for a Grey Cup. Are we ready as a city? And what should the city, beyond the Ticats, what should the city be putting into a bid? We're also going to then keep that same theme going and head down the road to Calgary where they are voting on whether to put in a bid for the 2026 Winter Olympics. This affects you as well because federal money, your tax dollars, are going into that bid. Is it a good idea? Jesse Lumsden, former Hamiltonian guy, will be joining us about that. And then we're going to be talking about headshots because that's what we talk about in sports these days. Sports has been reduced to headshots. Why can the CFL not get headshots out of the game? All that coming up on this episode of the Scott Radley Show podcast. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. The Hamilton Ticats want to launch a bid or are launching a bid to host the 2020 Grey Cup. Now, it has been a while. It has been a long while since Hamilton has hosted a Grey Cup. 1996 was the last time. Some of you will remember that particular Grey Cup. It was Toronto versus Edmonton. It was Doug Flutie playing in that game. It was an absolute blizzard going on down at Iverwind Stadium. You remember it now, right? Well, anyway, 2020 is now the next time that they are hoping to do it. Details at this point are not really clear, and that's okay. I mean, this is an early stages of the game here. Uh, I asked Ticats president Matt Affinek to come on the station today on the show tonight. He's speaking at a conference in Toronto and couldn't do it. But one thing that is abundantly clear from reading Steve Milton's piece in the spec today and from just plain old common sense is that if a bid was going to be made, this will require the participation, the cooperation, the involvement of the city of Hamilton, probably money, probably support, but I don't know exactly what that means. Jason Farr is the counselor for Ward 2, newly re-elected counselor of Ward 2. Congratulations, sir. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for having me on as well. Well, happy to have you. And um, yes, every every new count every counselor we're having on here now. I realize we have to congratulate again now that you've uh, found a new new four year term. So well done, Jason. Um, oh, thank you. Were you at the last Grey Cup in '96 in Hamilton? I was 28 years old, uh, 50s, 60s DJ for uh, Nevin Grant up there on the hill. We had some role, like every other media outlet in uh, the city at the time. And I'll never forget my radio show after a weekend that uh, was hazy in some areas. Uh, my line was uh, something to the extent of, and at the time, we have to go back, late 90s, early 90s, 90s, 80s. Downtown was not thriving as it is today, right? You recall. I do. Uh, we saw better days. The 90s was not necessarily our decade. And I made some crack on the radio that I guess all we need to do to bring people to the downtown core is put up a series of beer tents. That because would work. We were littered with beer tents during the Grey Cup, and it was always full. I mean, Grey Cup parties have obviously been popular for well since Grey Cups began, uh, but it was it was something to behold to see all those people everywhere in the core for the period of time that the Great Cup was hosted back in 96. And boy, did I have a great time. Yeah, I, I think you may be on to something, though. If beer had never been invented, neither would the Great Cup have been. Yes, the two are definitely related. When, uh, when Regina hosted the Great Cup uh, a few years ago, 2013, the cost to the city of Regina at that time was a million bucks. This year, it's up another half of that. Apparently, Edmonton is going to get about a million and a half from the province. 
and they are being expected to match about a million and a half, we're hearing, in cash or in kind. When you start hearing about a Grey Cup, and, and I, I expect that you figure that the city w- will be required to be involved in some way with this, is, no is, is a million and a half, two million, something in there, is that a reasonable number? Does that make sense to you? Well, now when you look at the economic spin-off of a Grey Cup, which is in the neighborhood of $100 million, so we've made investments in the past, as you know. You look at the Junos, uh, 500000 that one kick the city invested, I think a little bit more than that the second time around. Even the CCMAs, we made a significant municipal contribution to bring the Country Music Awards. But we always look at when we have these debates, and ultimately for the larger events, I can't think of a of an occasion other than a velodrome and maybe a, a Pan Am baseball uh, event for the Pan Am games uh, where we had said no based on economic output, economic spinoff. And that's a, that's a big factor when, when our tourism and culture people who are the uh, point person on the, on the great cup bid working with in partnership, full partnership. Now that the lawsuit is over with the Hamilton tiger cats and uh, banging the same drum to bring this to town, the first thing that council is going to look at, I would suspect most, if not all of us, is what do we get out of it as a city? And $100 million is, is roughly the economic spin-off of the last Grey Cup. So. And, and so, again, the question being then, if that's the number, if $100 million or even $50 million was the number, it sounds like it would make sense to you anyway as a councillor to say, if it's required to put in a million or a million and a half or two, that would seem to be an investment worth making. It's what Councillor Chad Collins would call a no-brainer when he talks about money. I'm not specifically telling you what Councillor Collins feels about the Grey Cup, but that's a no-brainer decision for me personally, uh, particularly uh, understanding and appreciating that I'm here in Ward 2, where obviously a great deal of the events you would suspect would be hosted, notwithstanding we have a wonderful Pan Am precinct that by the time 2020 or 2021 rolls around will be good to go for all sorts of wonderful programming in addition the game but i mean for what it would bring to the restaurants and the businesses and the hotels and everything here in ward two in the city frankly uh to me it's a no-brainer scott and i can say that confidently prior to the staff report coming december 19th you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml ward two counselor jason farr is on with us and jason just before the break we were talking about the potential cost to the city there's going to be some cost the city has to be involved in this some way and we always hear about the cash or in kind from a city perspective in this particular case with a stadium with a gray cup an event like this what would in kind actually mean well it could mean any number of things and they just want to make certain that you know folks are listening to scott Riley show thinking oh far doesn't know how to negotiate Here he is saying it's a no-brainer before he even knows what in kind or what our commitment would need to be as a municipality. Well, it's very easy to measure. You just have to look at past great cups and past municipal contributions in other municipalities. So so we know. And and those contributions have been, to my understanding, a mix, as you've mentioned as well. Uh, We could in kind offer, obviously, land, the the precincts, uh, um, uh, uh, programming space. It could be parking lots downtown. It could be the Pan Am precinct. It could be uh, uh, utilities. It could be the stadium at times where the Tiger Cats do not have the rights uh, for the week-long period for other events that are football-related. Uh, there's a number of different things we could do in kind, even staffing costs, uh, 
from an operational standpoint, we would have obviously a slew of folks from tourism to culture to facility staff uh, very much involved. In fact, we'd probably, I would suspect, if we do it for the Junos, we do it for Grey Cup, we'd have a staff team working you know, almost full-time, some of these people. So there's a lot of things in kind. And then from a monetary standpoint, we'd be looking at, as a council, where would the money come from? Would we, would, would we use a, a reserve? Um, uh, would we use it from uh, uh, other contributions? Look for uh, private-public partnerships, that sort of thing. So, I mean, those are the things that are, are left to, uh, to be debated once the report comes our way next month, Scott. But, uh, you know, again, it's... I don't think it's going to be the hardest debate of the debates we're looking at in the calendar in the months ahead. Well, you would think not. And and certainly, as you say, when when you talk about it, it's a no-brainer. I mean, it's never a no-brainer, I guess, because there's always could be a surprise. But based on past things we've seen from other cities. I get where you're coming from. That said, what what makes this also very intriguing, this is going to be a report coming in front of a brand new council with a bunch of people that are new to council it's hard to know where all your colleagues are going to stand on things like this. True, but again, having the experience now and looking at past debates that brought, you know, millions and millions of, I mean, we the $300 million in uh, economic benefit from, from events last year alone. So, so, you know, we're a big Canadian city and we want to host the biggest Canadian party. We wanted to host it 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the presentation is key and i think the presentation is going to also reference past commitments that past councils have made which makes it i think a little bit easier when the narinder nans and and uh and the the De paul dankos take a look at how successful we've been in the past with major canadian events it's, it, we've never faltered we've done we've been a great host city for everything from Little League Baseball to major, major concert events and award shows. Well, when you say we've never faltered, and I don't I don't put the blame on the city for this one, Jason, but back in 96 when the Grey Cup was held, it was a hard sell. It really was, and it was not a full house when that game was finally played. And that may have something to do with, I can't remember what the ticket prices were at that time, may have a bunch to do with a lot of different things. But how confident are you that all these years later that that situation would not repeat that Hamilton would not end up holding the bag whether the city of Hamilton or just the concept of Hamilton would not end up holding the bag on a Grey Cup problem again well you're one of our greatest sports minds all time in this city Scott and take a look (laughs) at where the CFL was in the mid 90s to late 90s they almost went bankrupt yep uh and it would football in general in Canada was a hard sell in and around that era if I'm not mistaken you can help confirm or deny no no you're right you're right for sure and it's not quite clearly. Uh, great cups are coveted and very much desired by every great cup city, and, and including Toronto. And so I think it's just a different. It's just in a different, different ballpark altogether than it was uh, back in, in that time. So so while yes, there were some challenges from uh, an event. To my recollection, as a 28 year old DJ back in the day, uh, you know, it, it to me looked like uh, it was. You know, it's not just the game, as 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 you know. It's a week long celebration, and certainly nobody that uh, I know of didn't have some role as a spectator or a, a participant in one of the many events back in '96. So, so I would expect that tenfold uh, this time around, given the popularity of the game now than what it was in that in that era. 
Jason Farr, Counselor Jason Farr, appreciate the time today. Thank you for doing this. Always a pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've just been chatting about Hamilton possibly hosting, bidding to host the Grey Cup in 2020. Well, let's continue with that theme, shall we? Because there is a vote going on, a plebiscite being held today in Calgary. Our friends in Alberta who are voting on whether they want to go ahead and make a pitch for the 2026 Winter Olympics. Now, if the Grey Cup is going to cost a million or two dollars, the Olympics cost a few more dollars than that. So this is a very interesting decision that the people in Alberta are going to be making today and are actually in the process of making. One of the leading proponents for this, one of the louder voices in Calgary, certainly as I've been following on social media, uh, pushing for the yes vote to say, yes, we should have another Olympics in Canada and let's do it in Calgary, is Jesse Lumsden, who now calls that city home. Uh, Jesse joins us now. Jesse, how are you? Good, Scott. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm great. Is this an exciting day for you or as a guy who's really in support of this, is this a, a gnaw the fingers down to the bone day for you? Uh, I find it to be a very interesting day. Why, what do you mean by that? I, I, well, the whole idea around hosting an Olympics has obviously changed over the years, decades, uh, partly because of uh, some of the negative aspects that have come out with things that have happened with the IOC and, and certain host cities like Rio or Sochi creating these Essentially, well, Sochi created a, a resort town out of nothing. Um, and, and so it's been blown out of proportion of what hosting is supposed to be about. And it's about the sport and it's about uh, helping your city and it's about, uh, you know, creating a, a legacy. And the one thing that hasn't been talked about a ton uh, is the IOC's Agenda 2020, which is essentially them coming out and saying, we've, we've let this ship go astray and this is a, this is a way that we can re re you know recorrect the, the course of that ship so it's it's as i've learned more and more about uh, agenda 2020 and seeing how calgary bid corporation has put together a bid that is pro it, it is the lowest costing um would be the lowest costing games that, that, that we have seen and definitely since to be honest with you, i can't i can't throw it a, a date but um, it's it's impressively low because of what they're able to do with the re, with the reuse of facilities that were established in 1988. So those are like, there's a, so many different things to consider, and, and then there's so many things that that, that come into play. But um, you know, it's a, a big part about what I have found that is the most interesting is the education side of talking to people that are a firm no because of whatever reasons X, Y, and Z, and then having the conversation educating them on the bid, educating them on where, you know, the, the, the Olympic movement is going and actually seeing uh, people change their mind. Now, at the end of the day, sorry for rambling here, at the end of the day, some people's beliefs cannot be swayed by facts, no matter how concrete they are. There's people still on the planet that think the world is flat. So it's just one of those things that you, all you can really do is try to educate, provide examples and, uh, you know, hope for the best because I really do think this is a great opportunity with a couple of those reasons that I, you know, had just talked about that would help this city continue building upon the legacy of 88, helping uh, build out some infrastructure, which is needed. And, and then, again, just the intangibles of hosting an Olympic Games, which is 
I can tell you from firsthand experience, is, is, is a magical thing for a city. I can absolutely understand how someone who has been in your position would be passionate as you are. Um, mm-hmm. I'm wondering, though, has it been frustrating at any point for you as a guy who's been in three Olympics to try and pass along, to make that story be told to someone who's never stood at the top of a bobsleigh run or worn the maple leaf or competed for the country? Because, I again, I get why, for sure, why you would see this the way it is. But for someone who's never been there, is it harder to see? Can you see their position, those who are negative to it? Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, a big concern is cost overruns and who's on the hook for cost overruns. Uh, you know, the big corporation, in my opinion, has done a pretty good job of getting the education and the information out there. Since 2000, operationally, okay, operationally, the cost that, that it takes to run an Olympic Games there has not been a single cost overrun since 2000 Sydney Olympics. So where are these cost overruns? Well, again, you have to go back to looking at Sochi. You have to go back to looking at Rio. That's the city's plan of developing whatever facilities that they want to. And if you look at Calgary's bids, there is no major builds happening because of that reason. And the IOC does not want people building stuff, infrastructure like that, because the world doesn't need more ski jump towers. How, how need more bobsleigh tracks. Jesse, what is the state right now of Calgary's existing infrastructure left over from 88? Needs to be revitalized, 100%. So it's, it's either going to happen with the support of uh, provincial and federal and, and, uh, and private funding, or it's going to eventually fall on the city's shoulders over the next 10 to 15 years. This is clearly then going to be a, we know it's going to be a Calgary thing if it's held in Calgary. There's obviously those infrastructure upgrades and everything else are going to be there, but there's no question this is going to be a Canadian thing because a lot of the money is going to be coming from federal dollars as well, provincial and federal dollars. So I I can even see easily, well, reasonably easily how you might sell someone on Calgary on this. What is the argument you make to people who are in Newfoundland or BC or here in Ontario to say why this is important that we bid yes on this game? Well, again, it it is really, Calgary will be hosting, but very much like Vancouver, it's Canada's games. And again, from first-hand experience, you know, I really did see all of Canada uh, come to Vancouver. Um, Now, when when people are concerned about their own taxes increases, uh, what people, again, it's about an education piece, the $1.45 billion that has been committed by the, the federal government is coming from Sport Canada's bucket. And that Sport Canada bucket has been in place for the sheer purpose of hosting a large or multiple large international sporting events that will be going towards, you know, potentially Calgary 2026. So it's, again, it's one of those things that is money that has already been paid into and been set aside uh, for exactly the reason that the feds can contribute to uh, something of this nature. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Jesse Lumsden joins us, former Hamilton Burlington guy, now living in Calgary. Uh, Jesse, I was reading a bunch of stuff on this today, especially as it pertains to the 98 or the 88 Olympics and how that affected and impacted Calgary. And essentially whittling down what I could take from all the different pieces that were written about this, it essentially said... The 88 Olympics transformed Calgary into the city that it is today, but it did cost an awful lot of money to do that. Is that, is that a fair trade-off, those two things, those two ex- ends of the spectrum? I don't know the exact amount of uh, costs when I was, you know, I was six years old. I was sure. there, um, but in re- regards to cost, and then you look at return 
Um, I'm not sure what the balance is. Uh, yeah, it, absolutely. Any major, this is would be considered a major project. Any major project costs money. And I mean, it's as much as you try to weigh the returns on that investment in the city uh, through uh, economic stimulus, through jobs, through tourism, those things can be tracked over a significant period of time. Uh, it's still tough. And again, you know, we go back to like the intangibles are harder to track, but have a bigger cascading effect over even a longer period of time. Um, when you look at the facilities here, like the Oval and uh, COP and uh, um, the the Nordic Centre up in Canmore, those are facilities are used every single day by hundreds, if not you know thousands of people per week. Uh, still, for community-based uh, grassroots and high-level, high-performance sport. Um, one thing Calgary did really well was they actually set up a legacy fund post the 88 games, which is essentially funded all of the maintenance and upkeep upkeep of all of those facilities up until this point in time. So the city has actually put very, very little money into the maintenance of uh, those um, community uh, establishments over the 30 years, which is, is, I mean, that's a tribute to the guys that set up 88 uh, back in the day. But yeah, cost, uh, more to the point, it's going to cost money. Well, and to, sure. and because of that, how salty has the fight been out there? Because I've been trying to follow it on social media, and maybe it's only the stuff that does get a little bit uh, cranky seems to find its way through. But we know down here with the stadium what that was all about. H- how bitter has the fight been there, or has it been bitter? Well, there's definitely, uh, I mean, it depends where you go, right? If you talk to people on actual sides of the coin that are putting this thing together versus what you see on Twitter. Uh, you know, Twitter is a dangerous, dangerous place for Calgarians <laughs> right now, and I really, really need to stop going on at 10 p.m. because so, I mean, you go back to the education side of it and, and the people's beliefs. It doesn't matter how many times you can present solid, factual information. People, people's beliefs some are, cannot be swayed. Mm. Uh, not all the time, but a lot of the time. So it's. I think if you go through the social media route, you'll see bitterness. I think if you go through looking at, um, you know, no campaigns or Bidco or yes campaigns, you see passion and you see energy and you see, you know, uh, good discourse between a pro and a con. Um, You know, if you've seen some of those debates and for those that are interested, you know, there is a CBC Facebook Live that I think is still up, um, which gives a great example of, you know, this sort of positive pros, cons, negatives, um, that 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 we've in a, in, a, in a constructive sort of way that I really hope after this is all said and done that's what we look back on as opposed to a divide of the city. I did not necessarily back in your playing days and your athletic days picture you as a guy getting into the political wars as it were. Um, what's it been like for you to be taking a public stand like this and taking the pats on the back as well as the slings? I hate it. Oh gosh, Scott! Honestly, like the the, the political side of it is infuriating. Have you had blowback? Oh, hundred percent, absolutely. But I mean, with most things that I've done, that, that if any any time I'm, you know, putting my voice out on social media, I'm going to get blowback, whether it's been with the Tie Cats or you know bobsleigh or whatever it might be. But um, you know, a lot of the time, the blowback, the real negative blowback, is coming from people that just. That's what they do. They're just, whether you call them trolls or people that are just, 
are in a pretty dark place and just do not want to see a you know a, a positive spin on anything. So it, it you know it is what it is. That's that, that the ugly side of social media, but there is a very very good side that allows for you know uh, open conversation between so many people uh, to you know to troubleshoot and to solve problems and to you know come up with ideas and solutions for things like this. But, so so if it were to happen, would you ever want to be part of the organizing committee? I don't know, to be honest with you. I'd love to be involved at some at some capacity. Uh, at the very least, I'll I'd be volunteering 100 percent because I think that's you know such an, an amazing uh, aspect that I've truly enjoyed through my Olympic experiences, uh, seeing and and being a part of uh, the volunteerism in each of the countries, and they all differ drastically. Um, but that would be I would I would be a if I wasn't involved with the organizing committee, I would definitely be uh, at least a volunteer, if not trying to make a very poor comeback to this. Sport. <laughs> uh, last thing, we only have a few seconds left. Any idea about the turnout about, I mean, is this everything that everybody is talking about today? Is it a big turnout? Is it a little turnout? What do you know? What I, I so the, it, I think it is a pretty big turnout. And from what I heard, there was two days of early voting you could go to. Out of those two days, apparently, uh, I think it was around 60,000 people, but apparently it was more than the last municipal election that showed up for early voting. So, yeah, I I, yeah, I, today's going to be, I, I, like I said, it's going to be really, really interesting. I don't know why they didn't tie it into the municipal election, quite honestly, and just have it as a as a referendum item. But, you know, they whatever. Politicians do what they do. Uh, Jesse Lumsden, exactly. always love having you on. Thanks for taking the time to do this today. Good luck with it today. Thanks, Scott. And uh, Ticats, I mean, that was, a, that was a heck of a performance. Excited to see what they're going to do. We will be watching. Appreciate yeah. it, Jesse. <laughs> Talk soon. Thanks a lot. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is no um, issue in sports right now, in any sport, that is as relevant and important and problematic as headshots. You've heard so much over the years about CTE and concussions and all the rest of this stuff. I understand that you are bored to death with it. We all are, but it's really important. And when you're talking about athletes, leagues are now desperately trying to rid themselves of these headshots for a variety of reasons. One, we like to believe that there's more to it. We're not going to be totally cynical. There is some cynicism, but leagues want to get rid of it, A, because they want their players to be healthy. But B, we also understand, and we just talked about this yesterday with the NHL concussion lawsuit, leagues also see that there are big problems and big costs involved if you don't do things to fix the league so that guys can play safely. Well, folks out in Saskatchewan are a little sour these days because they are out of the playoffs right now, uh, thanks in no small part to a series of headshots that one by one knocked out their quarterbacks over the last number of weeks. And so the assistant vice president of player personnel, John Murphy, had this to say yesterday. Let me read his quote. Don't want to beat on what's already been beaten over several times, but to hear the person who's in charge of the entire league say that a hit like yesterday, we'll get to this in a minute, needs to be closer evaluated, that something needs to be done about it. Well, I'm going to go one step further and say something should have been done about it after last year's East Final. A turnaround game and a turnaround play in that game should have been reversed when Kevin Glenn got hit in the head. So now I go to a preseason game against Calgary this year and Zach Caleros gets hit in the head. No flag. In the first half of the Ottawa game, Caleros gets clipped unintentionally in the face mask. No penalty. Two weeks ago, it takes us throwing the flag to get a hit to the head, penalized. 
That was Caleros again. And then yesterday at the end of the game, there's another clear hit that's clear to everybody but the people working the game. So for me, I'm saying this clearly is a league-wide scenario. Now that person who is in charge of the league, the entire league he's talking about, is Commissioner Randy Ambrosi, who was on my next guest's show talking about this very thing yesterday. Jamie Nye is the host of The Green Zone on 980 CJME in Regina, which is Saskatchewan's number one sports radio program, which makes this perfect. Saskatchewan's number one sports radio program and the top evening show in Hamilton. We're all having a nice, happy melding of greatness here or something like that. Uh, (laughs) Jamie, thank you for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time today. Yeah, no problem. This um, This is a baffler to me. All the stuff that's happened in the CFL this year, but especially in Saskatchewan, which happens to be the heartbeat of the league and the place where the most attention is on this. Because, as I say, every league seems to be so focused on getting rid of this, and the CFL seems to be incapable of figuring out how. Well, Randy Ambrosi has said right off the get-go, his number one priority is player safety. And this is where push comes to shove. And... You can make the argument, does an officiating mistake mean Randy Ambrosi doesn't care about player safety? And that was the point the commissioner tried to make on my show yesterday because there's fans in Saskatchewan that say Randy Ambrosi can shove it. Where he, when he talks about player safety being his number one priority, when Caleros and Bridge both get hit in the head and both plays don't get called penalties. But Ambrosi wants to show his whole tenure here on what he's done to make the game safer for the players but when there are clear fouls where a quarterback like Brandon Bridge is lying seemingly unconscious on the turf and there's no flag and everybody at the league offices in Toronto who are paid to watch these games and weigh in on you know, an interception or pass interference. Heck, there's a guy in Toronto who can change the spot of the, the the ball six inches, but they can't call that a penalty right now with the rules. And that's where a lot of fans go, okay, is this really, are they being serious when it comes to player safety? So there's a lot of people upset at the commissioner because they see a clear rule change that can happen now, could have happened two weeks ago after Zach Kalaros got hurt, and probably could have happened as John Murphy said after Kevin Glenn got hurt and got hit in that East final when they didn't call a headshot a foul. Well, Jamie, here's the thing. The, the ref was in this game was wearing a, a, hel- a, cam- a camera on his hat. So you were able, everybody was able to see what he was looking at. And in this case, Tom Valesi, who was the official, it showed that his view was blocked. And that's fine. I think that's actually a good thing for the league and for this argument, because it was clear that the ref didn't just not throw the flag because he didn't want to. He couldn't see it. But you, this goes exactly to the point of what you're talking about. If you're serious about trying to get this stuff out of the game, we've gone to technology for every other thing in sports. How come there's not a way to apply the same technology to say, yeah, refs get blocked, refs can't see everything, so let's use the eye in the sky that we use for every other rule. Why don't we do that? And that's a great question. I asked the commissioner that yesterday, and he says they're now looking into it, uh, which is something I believe he, he is a proponent of doing now, which is, giving more power to the eye in the sky, the video official, uh, on making a call such as player safety if it goes missed by the on-field staff. And, heck, Brandon Bridge talked to media today, the quarterback who got hit, and he even said, I, I saw the ref cam and I see why, to, why they didn't call it. Yeah, he was blocked. 
and he was perfectly fine with the ref missing it based on that vantage point. He went, yeah, he was blocked. But other leagues um, do this already. Other leagues have this. The NCAA has this already. Absolutely. And that is, and it was brought up this offseason. Kevin McDonald, the uh, VP of football operations uh, for the Canadian Football League, was on my show after the Calaros hit, and he said that it was brought up this offseason. And he says it will likely be brought up again on does the eye in the sky get more power on player safety uh, issues and, and should it? And I think a lot of fans would say absolutely. Those plays should be called, especially when there's an injury and there's more than enough time uh, taking part Sunday's game to have the eye in the sky review it because Brandon Bridge was down for two or three minutes. So there's enough time there to call the penalty, move the ball up 15 yards, which is now a 50-yard throw for David Watford for a Hail Mary rather than a 65-yard throw. I, I just simply don't understand when leagues, and look, I do believe that the CFL does want to get this out of the game. I do believe that. I'm not being so cynical as to say that Randy Ambrosi is saying this and really couldn't care less. I think they do want to get it out. I just fail to see how this can be such a difficult thing to do. They, they, this last year, they had a rule where the coaches were allowed a certain number of challenges mid season, drop of the hat, boom, done. We changed that rule this year. An Ottawa red black player has a drink of a can of beer after scoring a touchdown. And within four minutes, they've made a new rule that says you can't do that. How hard can it be to change the rule? And he, he says he's not the emperor, uh, and mm. he's the board's approval. Uh, so he'll, he said he's talking to the board today about this. So maybe tomorrow we'll find out something that they have changed the rule. And it was something he said was a mistake in his first year when he changed that video review in which he didn't consult with football operations in the CFL. They just went ahead and did it. And he went, well, I I may may have overstepped my bounds as a commissioner to move that quickly on something without having the rules committee weigh in on it and having conference calls with the GMs and the coaches who are on that rules committee. But – he is the commissioner of this league, and he needs to lead it, uh, no matter what football operations believes. And, and it's interesting, even Chris Jones, the head coach of the Riders, says he doesn't want any more challenges. He, he's not a proponent of going, hey, we need more challenges. He understands that mistakes are made, but he does believe with all the technology they're using in the CFL, surely someone can make that call for them. And it should happen this week that that call can be made in the East or West final, because goodness gracious, if Jeremiah Masoli is lying on the turf in the final minute of the ball game and the Hamilton Tiger Cats are now third and 15 rather than getting a first down and a chance to win the ball game, that is that will make the league look absolutely ridiculous when it's clear they have an opportunity to make it. I think it's a simple change for player safety and for you know illegal hits to the head of their most prized possession, which is the quarterback. But even, Jamie, if it's just a case of a missed shot, a missed penalty, the penalty is not all that severe. Like, if I'm if I'm playing against Saskatchewan, and I saw that, you know, the way they were playing was Zach Caleros, which was pretty darn good, and I deliver a headshot, and I get 15 yards, but Zach Caleros is out of the game, that seems like a pretty darn good trade-off for me. I mean, if you're a guy who's nutsy enough to do that, uh, that seems like a pretty good thing. I, I fail to understand how we don't have far more severe penalties if you're truly going to try and get this out of the game. 
And, and the commissioner uh, also yesterday uh, on my program brought I, I brought that forward, which is do you need automatic ejections, automatic suspensions? And he says it is definitely a conversation, but it, the, this is one they'd have to have with the CFLPA. Of course, of course. Uh, the, the, and the CFLPA will have to sign off on it. And it pushes the responsibility over to the Canadian Football League Players Association, who represents the players, both the guy making the hit and the guy getting hit. Exactly. And, and so and why then have the CFL has the CFLPA not been screaming this from the mountaintops? Because they also, as you say, they represent the guys who are out with these concussions. How have they not been leading the charge on this? Because they're also the guys that are have to look out for the player like Odell Willis, who makes the hit. And... They will they will waffle back and forth on this, on going, okay, well, automatic ejection, that's a little much, because they will say, well, what if it's, you know, he gets pushed in and uh, he gets called and he's automatically kicked out, and then they review it and go, oh, okay, he got pushed in, that was an unfair, well, they missed him for the rest of the game, so how do they get that back? Because mistakes still will be made on this. No matter what rule changes, we all have to agree, human error is going to be made, so... Uh, it's. It, I've always thought it's weird where the NHLPA, CFLPA, any PA, after a hellacious shot, will all of a sudden you'll hear, oh, they're gonna, they're, they're gonna appeal, and you go, okay, who are you looking out for? Really? Exactly. No, it, think, it's it's I exactly think right to look out for the guy on the ground. It, it's exactly right. So if you're a guy, you cover this league uh, again. I mean, the, Saskatchewan Regina is where the the beating heart of the CFL really is. Uh, your show, you talk about this all the time. You are as touched into CFL football as anyone else out there. What should the penalty be if you deliver a headshot to a quarterback? And again, not. However you want to define it, not being pushed in. If it's an intentional thing, if you've made clear contact, what should the penalty be for the guy who does that? Well, I think they really uh, they have to look at automatic ejection now, where you're out of the game. And that's just that. I think that's the only way players will think twice where the angle they're taking on a quarterback. And I, I think that's it. Uh, and if it's a 15-yard penalty and all oh, that strike one, and if you get two, you're kicked out, I don't think that's good enough. If they, if they want to say we're going to take this seriously and protect our quarterbacks and we have a mindset change, the only way to do it is not only an automatic ejection, but hit him in the pocketbook as well with a maximum fine every single time. You hit the quarterback with your helmet, it's a maximum fine every single time. Not we're going to look at it and know the severity, etc. It's just automatic penalties now. Yeah, I mean, there's other things that people have thrown out there. I heard someone say, you know what, uh, if if the Players Association is really going to fight this on behalf of the person who does the action, and you can't get anywhere with that, you say, fine. Uh, if you do this, it is first and goal from the one, no matter where you are on the field, which is basically in the CFL, almost an automatic touchdown. Let's go that way. I, I don't know that that solves anything. But here's the thing, Jamie, we only have a minute or so left. Here's the thing that I don't get about this. We have seen the NHL just this week has this settlement in the class action concussion action. We've seen the NFL with a settlement or a, a deal for a billion dollars. How is the CFL, if they ever had a legitimate class action lawsuit brought forward with any kind of teeth, how could the CFL possibly make an argument in court that they have done everything possible within the confines of a game that involves hitting? How can they possibly make the case they've done everything they can to take headshots out of the game? Oh, it's going to be a tough one, uh, but they have precedent of settlements 
uh, from the National Hockey League and the NFL. And when you look at the salary structure of the CFL, it is far less money that they are making and maybe far less of a payout that maybe have to go. Uh, and then maybe that's the saving grace. But I, I also look at the Canadian Football League and the players in it. And it's similar to the NHL lawsuit. The, the reason the, there is a difference between billions of dollars in the NFL and just a couple of million in the NHL was I think the players have a different mindset uh, in in the National Hockey League and maybe more, as well in the Canadian Football League, which is, you know, we're up here. We, we knew the risks and are, are willing to just accept the risk that they took in, in hitting the helmet and, and getting hits to the head and won't line up for lawsuits. Um, the, the lawsuit thing is a lot more American than it is in Canada. I think we can all agree on that. And when half the players and, and more have been Canadian, it, I think that might help the CFL as well, where there's a lot less players that automatically think, where's my next lawyer to get money? Uh, that's not so much the Canadian mentality, and I think that was part of it in the NHL lawsuit. A lot of those players were Canadian who weren't thinking, I'm going to line up with a lawyer now to make my buck knowing, hey, I played knowing full well I was concussed and lied about it. And I think you're bang on. Zach Kolaros, he lied about it. He said he lied. He misled the trainers earlier this season on one of his concussions. And and I think a lot of players have in their careers as well, and that's part of the reason and part of the defense that the CFL, the National Football League, can look across the room and said, did you ever lie to a trainer about your concussion symptoms? And if it's a yes, well, then get out of the room because yeah. that, that's the bottom line. I think you're right, but I think if you're the CFL, you are taking a chance if you're just trusting that the players aren't ever going to sue if you're not going to do something significant and soon about this thing. Because the longer you continue to allow these things, and, and when I say allow, again, I don't think Randy Ambrosi wants this to go on. I'm just puzzled by how so many other rule changes in this league seem to be able to be made on the drop of a hat, and this one just drags on and on with more and more and more cases. And as I say, you know better than anyone. You're out in Saskatchewan. I imagine that many of the people wearing green out there are pretty salty today, thinking if Zach Caleros is playing, we probably beat Winnipeg on the weekend. Oh, yeah, they they they, they think that. Most of them do. Uh, and uh, some even go, all right, to the hit on bridge. Well, if that was a 50-yard throw, maybe they win with a Hail Mary rather than it falls at the 12-yard line in the hands of Winnipeg Blue Bombs. So I hope, what I hope is this that tomorrow we find out the CFL is making a slight change for this week on hits to the head to the quarterback, and they'll deal with it in the offseason because I don't want to see this again in the East Final, West Final, or Grey Cup, and I know the commissioner doesn't either, so they have to do something about it. You, Jamie, you just touched on, though, one of the things a minute or so ago. Uh, People around here right now may be listening to this saying, yeah, Saskatchewan, you know, we're not Saskatchewan. When this happens to Jeremiah Mazzoli on the weekend, you're bang on. All of a sudden, whatever city it's in, whoever's quarterback it is or NHL player, whatever, oh man, suddenly this is a very, very big deal when it's your guy and the game and the season is on the line. Absolutely, and I hope I don't see it. I don't want to see it this weekend where another call is missed on a shot to a quarterback who's left out of the game and may impact the result of uh, the Final Four in the Canadian Football League when we know 
they have the technology and the people in Absolutely. place to make those penalty calls. Jamie Nye, he's the host of the Green Zone on 980 CJME in Regina. I really appreciate you taking some time today to talk about this. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me on. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.